0: Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. In this episode, we'll be talking about how healthcare professionals might handle the return to work, especially if they've been shielding.
1: I'm Abby River, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in well-being, and I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is especially important for healthcare professionals at this time. And we are delighted to have on the podcast today someone with lots of experience in helping clinicians return to work. Emma, could you please introduce yourself?
2: Hi, hi everyone. Yeah, My name's um, Emma Lishman and I'm a clinical psychologist um, and I work as part of the North Bristol Trust staff wellbeing team and for the past 18 months have been working on a project that um, aims to improve the experience of doctors returning to training and obviously in that time unexpectedly COVID happened and within COVID we had this concept of shielding um, a group of people who are described as extremely clinically vulnerable and asked to stay at home um, and we know that that has affected many medical professionals so many of our colleagues have been unable to attend the clinical environment and as that initial period was for 12 weeks it fit within the support programme, which is anybody who's had an absence for longer than three months. So at My Trust, I was asked to work with the um, doctors who have been shielding at our trust. And I've had the privilege of doing that over the past past few months. Is that OK? Did I say that? <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you, Emma. So I think at the moment
0: we're in a place where shielding has been paused, although people who are clinically vulnerable are still advised to work from home, is my understanding. So at the moment, are you expecting that some doctors will now start to return to work who have been shielding or maybe even start thinking about so it? So from
2: my understanding in, um, that actually many of the my doctor colleagues and people that I've worked with have already already been returning over the course of the past few months I think initially in the first shielding period last March many people you know we were all very unsure about what was happening and many people at home but as that shielding paused I think towards August at the beginning of August last year many people started to return to kind of clinical um, environments and it a lot of people never never went back to shielding whereas there's another group of people who even though it was paused last April felt the risk was still far too high and um, it's basically impossible I guess to ensure that a hospital or clinical environment is COVID secure um, and it's very difficult to limit social interaction although I know risk assessments have happened so some people have chosen or maybe that's the wrong use of words, some people have felt that they've had no other choice than to keep shielding. So I think it would be very different for every everyone. I think yeah and when we talk about this and it's a thing about language, but I guess we we talk about return to work. And I think it's very important to mention early on that we're not talking about return to work because everybody <clears> I know who's been shielding has been working really, really hard at home. Um often overworking So I guess what we're talking about is return to clinical environment or return to patient facing as as opposed to returning to work as such. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I feel this is a really unfair question given how we just talked about the variety of people's different um situations and feelings about about this situation that they found themselves in is very clinically vulnerable people um but do you are there some common emotions and feelings that people are experiencing around their return to a clinical environment
2: OK, well, I've been quite fortunate over the past few months. I've been involved in quite delivering quite a lot of webinars, return to work webinars. Um, and some of these have been where myself and colleagues are speaking, but a lot of them have been kind of more workshop-based where we've been able to have interaction. Um, and I've been working with doctors who've been shielding themselves, so we, we do this. And one of the things we've done is try to gather as, as many themes. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration around... Um, over, I think when we look back on this, this hasn't been the best. Um, and you know, understandably, at the start, nobody knew what was happening. You know, these concepts—shielding, lockdown, pandemic, social isolation—they they were new. We didn't, even, we'd never even heard these words before. They, they roll off the tongue. Um, but now, but at then, we didn't, we didn't know what it, what it meant. And so, initially, I guess we can understand why things weren't set up into place. You know, people didn't have the right technology. You know, sent home but unable to. Do their job or not have a role, but that's continued. And whereas some people I think have had, I guess, the best experience, you know, it's never going to be, it's never going to have been a good experience, I guess, but being able to feel utilized and work and um, have a role, which is obviously so important for people who've worked so hard for these careers. Other people I think have felt really underutilized and left at home, and that's gone on. So I think there is a lot of frustration and a lot of anger around and a lot of confusion Um people are worried understandably I think Um you know at the beginning you know this language of extremely clinically vulnerable um, the letters that were sent were were terrifying people were bombarded by text messages and you know people were told they're not even to leave their their front door um, and I've spoke to many people who've only left their house a handful of times and are now looking at coming back to a a work environment, a patient-facing environment. So I, I think there's fear around. Um, but there's positive emotion too. I've heard quite a lot of people who've appreciated time with their family this past year have reflected on the work-life balance, uh, have felt relieved that they haven't had to um, put themselves into a situation where they're really at increased risk. Um, but, yeah, so I think I think the main things I've perhaps picked up is. a... Uh, at best a sense of frustration but mainly anger um, at, at how this has panned out for a lot of people um, and then things around fear oh and of course the other one which I haven't mentioned is guilt Um, so many of the doctors I've spoke to have felt so so guilty about not being in the clinical environment this past year and I think there's a number of reasons for that I think medicine attracts highly motivated perfectionistic air. Uh, You know, wanting to help uh, people, so to then overnight be told you're you're at home, and of course they have been doing working really hard and doing things, but it's perhaps not had the same. You know, it's behind closed doors. It's not the kind of forward facing. And then we had that whole narrative about heroes, and what happens if you didn't feel you were a hero. So although, you know, on one hand I understand that that narrative was to support people, it didn't. It had an effect on people who perhaps didn't feel like heroes too. So even though. I personally don't think anyone should feel an ounce of guilt. I think the sacrifice shielding people have made is immense. I think that I haven't heard many people not feeling hugely, hugely guilty about not being in the clinical environment.
0: That's interesting, Emma, because you were kind enough to contribute to one of our careers clinic articles, I think even maybe last year, and the other two respondents who were were clinicians also mentioned Mm -hmm. this feeling of guilt. So it's obviously something that a lot of people are feeling, and I know that we don't want to focus on the individual. So we can cut this question if we want to, but just for a second, to focus on the individual: if someone is feeling really guilty, is there anything that they can do to try and help those those well, feelings? Well, I
2: think yeah these emotions, they're very difficult for us to change, aren't they? If we feel guilty, we feel guilty. And if we feel angry, we feel angry. And I think that's one of the things, you know, in psychology that we try and get across. These are really normal human emotions we experience. But then how people return, how people come back is going to have a huge impact on that. And I've heard awful, awful things, you know, people coming back and people saying, oh, just back in time for the next wave or... You know, oh, I thought you'd have a better suntan at the end of last summer or, oh, nice jolly. Well, if you're already experienced feeling of guilt and you come back to something that's as insensitive or um rude as that, that is going to enhance it. And I think that often in medicine, there's a lot of banter and a lot of humour. And I've actually spoke to people who normally would quite like that banter. But in this situation, it's not funny. <laughs> you know, they've been in the house, they've been terrified and, and coming back that just so I think as people in the environments where people are returning to we need to be really mindful of how we welcome people back how we acknowledge the work that they've done how we don't make small jokes or humor about the situation because i think that is highly likely to then enhance the feelings that people will 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 have um Mm -hmm. about not not having not having been been in really
1: and i think difficult isn't it because sometimes that humour is a way of expressing these negative emotions that people who've not been shielding might experience you know their kind of fear about being in the clinical environment you know over the past year and and sort of all the pressures they've been under so i think you know there's a lot of huge emotions going on you know both in people who are returning to work and people who have um sorry returning to the clinical environment and people who've continued to practice in the clinical environment um And I think, you know, it's a bigger question for the health service as a whole, isn't it, about how we're going to kind of deal with that, perhaps anger towards the government for, you know, perceived mishandling of of the first lockdown and and delaying interventions, Um, uh, you know, or or sort of, you know, eat out to help out last summer and, you know, what effect that might have had Mm. on transmission. So there's this question about all of these huge emotions that are going on across the health service to these clinicians. And I'm just really heartened to hear that at your trust you're providing a service for people who are transitioning back to the clinical environment and I wonder if you had any thoughts about what service we might need to provide to the workforce in general and I know that's a massive question mm. <laughs> but I'm just interested in your thoughts.
2: So, so we did a couple of things uh, last year when the poor shielding and we'll, we'll revisit re- again as I said at the start I've been really fortunate to have worked with a lot of Dr Shielding so when I initially I found there were 16 doctors junior doctors trainee doctors shielding at my trust and I contacted them all um, and sort of said you know partly how are you and partly what can we do (laughs) what can we do to make this better and as a result of that we created some posters and um, I'm happy for my details to be shared if anyone wants any of these resources but we kind of created a top tips do's and don'ts things about when people are returning Um, and we also did a video which was the stories of people shielding because I think some of it is about trying to create empathy and actually putting ourselves in the position of people shielding and think actually how how has this been um yeah you know and we're not always going to get it right and um I, I make mistakes with my language a lot I've quite often because I was working and returning to training so working with people returning after mat leave or research or um working abroad. I often say, oh, returning to work and you could just see people's face <laughs> then it's like, oh god, I've done it again. So but I think we this is new to us all, um, and we're not gonna get it right all the time. But we can apologize and we can say, I've been a bit clumsy there, or sorry, that joke may I could see that didn't land well and I regret that. Um but I think it is just about really trying to be um aware of the other person's experience. And I don't know whether this fits here, but part of that, I think, is if we think at the start, I don't know whether you remember back when they announced the number of deaths and all the scary stats, one of the things they did was announce how many people were dying of the clinically vulnerable. So they almost kind of did the, by having that group, it made everybody else feel okay. Well, you're okay because you're not clinically, so you're likely to die of this. You can, you know, it really did create a kind of, us you know and it was these two two groups Um, and i can't imagine how it must you know it was very if i'm blatantly honest it was very relieving you know i felt very relieved that i was unlikely to die because if i but how it must have felt if you were the other on that side of that group and and still feel because covid is still around (laughs) and you know obviously we've got the vaccination program and it is less there's less community transmission at the moment but it is still around. So I think I've gone on a bit of a tangent there. But again.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for that, Emma. I think there's loads more we can talk about on this topic. But before we do, here's a
3: message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. There was something
0: slightly on a different topic that I wanted to ask you. We've been working from home since... I think, March of last year. And I have to be honest, I think I've gone slightly feral working by myself. And when I return to the workplace, I'm just going to have to sit at a desk at a computer. I don't have to see patients. So I wondered what employers could do for people who, you know, the people that you mentioned who maybe haven't left the house very often to then go back to a clinical environment where they have to see patients. I mean, that feels to me like quite a big jump. So what can employers do to support those people? So I
2: think there's some really practical things. And I, I did a return to work course just last week actually and the biggest concern was around people's around the PPE and around um knowing how it works. And it is it is quite scary. You know, my hospital has changed a lot. There's a one-way system and, you know, you have to... It, the environment is, is very different. Um, and don't assume people know that. So I think, you know, making sure people know which door to arrive at, um, what the PPE is like, where you can pick that up. You know, for doctors, making sure that they get fit tested before... You know, somebody said, oh, I feel really silly asking, but do I have to bring my own mask? And, you know, so again, just assuming that people do not know how, how that works and make sure that is set up. Um, we've been advising people who've been shielding to come back. You know, the hospital obviously have provide the PPE, but, you know, it makes people feel more reassured to kind of have their own goggles or, you know, just just things like that as well. But, yeah, just to really remember that people haven't been in these environments for a long time. Um, and so to talk that through. And I guess it's all about having pre-return conversation um, and within supported return to training, which is the process that um, any trainee doctor will receive if they've been off for longer than three months. That's basically it. You will have a return to work conversation. You then get 10 days supervised clinical practice and then you get a review conversation and the any any doctor trainee doctor returning to shielding is entitled to that and should be having that but you know wouldn't it be great if we could apply that to to everyone that everybody has a conversation about what you're looking forward to about coming back you know what what are you worried about what is you know what's your biggest concern is there anything I can do to kind of allay that can I come and meet you and show you I remember when I first went in um I I had had to can't think why I'd been off I think one of my children was self-isolating and when I went back there was a change I had to wear scrubs and I hadn't had to wear scrubs before and somebody just told me where to go but I I didn't know where it was and I was kind of wandering around and then I saw a colleague and they they showed me and it was so nice so you know maybe could could we meet people and show them how the buildings changed and just the environment is really different and actually quite a few shielding doctors I've spoke to have been pleasantly surprised because when they you know at the start social distancing was kind of non-existent and mask wearing was non-existent so they've come back and they've been quite pleasantly surprised about how um things have have improved um and I think we have to frame it rather than oh this will be you're likely to be okay but if you have a wobble let me know you're going to have a wobble. If you're OK, great. Because I think in that way, if we frame the conversation, it is going to be hard for people to go back into the work environment. It is, you know, if we have had two maternity leaves, it's nerve wracking when we go back. and you know, We do doubt ourselves. Our confidence is reduced. We worry about our skill, skill base. Um, so I just wanted to pick up on something you
1: said there, Emma about um That question about what are you looking forward to about returning to work because I think it's easy for us to have this narrative where returning to the clinical environment I said return to work (laughs) returning to the clinical environment you know is is terrifying and negative and bad but um uh, my my sister has been a shielding doctor as a GP uh, and actually you know um, she has just returned to the clinical environment after a year of working at, at home and she's so thrilled yeah. <laughs> to be back at, at work and to be um, back in touch with colleagues and she yeah. felt so isolated um, being being at home and like you said, you know within the four walls all the time um and so i think um it's really nice to have that positive approach as well and say you know there's a lot of great things about being in the clinical environment that brings us a lot of joy as clinicians connecting with patients connecting with colleagues fulfilling what we feel is our purpose and our our, our vocation and so my question is um Obviously, in a primary care environment, you might not have as many sort of structured programmes as as you might do in a hospital where you're dealing with larger numbers of clinicians. Um, What resources are there out there for individuals who who might want to um, seek some support for returning to the clinical environment?
2: There's a group called the Support for Shielding Trainees, and that's, so it's S-STAG. Um, and basically that's a group of trainees have been shielding who are working with HEE and the support program to um they've brought out all sorts of resources so there's a kind of a checklist there's a flow chart for returning and they also did something on activities you could do whilst while shielding um peer support models and uh, they've got a great resource list so they are really useful and um, a resource um, and and They have recently produced an e-learning package for educational supervisors and other educators all about how we might support people returning. It's a really great um, package that's been co-developed through people who have been shielding and HEE. And then the support and support is written S-U-P-P um s-u-p-p-o capital r-t-t supported return to training as part of health education england and they again have got many many recorded webinars on you know bushing up on certain skills um, thinking about confidence I, I appear on a few of them and um, there's they, they have there there is a lot there is a lot there Um and i think it's really important to be aware of that and any trainee doctors who are returning it's different for the medical staff but for trainee doctors they are entitled to have the full support process although they have been working this whole time I think that's really important to know because that does give you that 10 um 10 days of supervised clinical practice which will mean no one calls no doing clinics on your own, no lists on your own if you're in operating theatres. And that just ensures, because I think actually most people I've spoken to are pleased to be returning and those who feel the risk is too high aren't happy about that. They're, they're making very, very difficult decisions about their quality of life, their careers, their work. I mean, and the, if you're training, the impact this is having on training progression can be huge if you're in a craft special specialty, which it really means, you know, you're not got your operating time in or. You know, and I, I spoke to a paediatrician the other week who just was saying, oh, it was so lovely to, to hold a baby again. And You've yeah. really spoken to Kat's point about the fact that
0: for lots of people, it'll be a positive thing to go back to work, because I imagine for a lot of doctors, patients are really
2: one of the main reasons yeah. why they do the job. Yeah. And and also a lot of people, you know, some people have been sent home, you know, I, a, a laptop and the, you know radiographers with the machinery you know home to be able to but a lot, a lot of people haven't and actually it's a bit of a travesty because people could have been doing clinics and there's we've got the technology now but not everybody's had that so some people have had to get back into the clinical environment
1: the other thing that i wanted to touch on quickly which has
2: struck me as we were talking is um
1: the idea of sort of um stigma i suppose and and confidentiality mm-hmm. because um if, you know, I know when I returned to work after quite a short period of time off um, a few years ago when I had a, a sort of mental health breakdown, you know, I'd come back to work and people would say, oh, you've been off. Have you been on holiday? And I would say to them, no, I haven't. I've been off with my mental health. <laughs> um, but I, And I felt that was an important thing to do. But, you know, people may not... Uh, their colleagues may not know about their clinical condition they may not want to talk about their clinical condition so is this there's this real issue isn't there of kind of having to out yourself as being clinically extremely vulnerable and you know what do you think we can say or colleagues can do to help that abby wants to chime in
0: i just wanted to add on that point because i know with the piece that emma contributed to actually one of the doctors who um wrote for us it was that they lived um Mm. someone in their household was clinically extremely vulnerable and that was the reason why they were shielding so I think to add to that cat there's also the issue of maybe it's not even your own personal
2: clinical vulnerability but it's someone within your household definitely um yeah, it's it's a really important point, and I think for everyone, uh, my line my, my line manager mentioned this to me. She was talking about doing the risk assessments, and she was like, "I feel a bit uncomfortable asking everybody their BMI." And uh, and then, and then somebody in one of our open plan offices shouted across, "Oh, I assume you're a risk of a naught." Like just kind of like making assumptions on how people look according to what they're. It's uh, you know, but actually, we're asking, we're having brand new conversations about things that we don't normally discuss and absolutely it's been a huge issue for the people i've spoke to many doctors um have actually worked really hard to conceal um, the long-term health condition that they've had in fact i've been quite taken aback by the lengths to people have gone to to try and keep um yeah their health condition things such as diabetes and Crohn's, um which are usually invisible um health conditions nobody needs to know about them Um, and people work really really hard to manage them really really well so they then don't have an impact on their career or career progression and one of the things that quite a few doctors have spoke to me about is that that they feel there is a huge stigma towards people with long-term health conditions in medicine and people are often not treated very compassionately or kindly and that. There is a kind of cognitive bias, I guess, and it, there is a stigma, and it can impact on people's training progression. And I've actually been quite surprised by this because obviously we think of medicine as kind of a caring profession, but it seems that what people are kind of saying is that it's not so to their own. And so, in addition to having this devastating year of shielding, they are now facing the fact that everybody knows about their health condition and they're having to have lots of discussions about something that was at one point very private and um and personal and you know and again so there's a piece of work there isn't there one about how we you know how people shielding think about what they do about that and what they're willing to share but also as about the people Um, working who have not been shielding about how much we ask people because I guess there needs to be some information to inform a risk assessment but we don't need to know everything about everyone's health condition and we need to assume that people will tell us what what is needed to be known to for them to get back to the the workplace so yeah I think our confidentiality has kind of gone out the window a little bit and it's a strange Mm -hmm. strange situation to be in
1: But then I think the flip side of that, Emma, which is interesting to reflect on, is that, you know, perhaps we have had this really quite long term cultural problem in the NHS where we have this kind of narrative of heroism, perfection, Mm -hmm. you know, you are super competent, you are not particularly human, yeah. you know, you don't have a health condition, you don't have a disability, you don't have a complex home life with um, varying competing priorities. You know, your, your sort of job is your vocation, and, you know, that's that's everything. So I think if perhaps if we can have more discussions that recognise that, you know, everyone in the health service is a complex human being with a whole variety of, um, you know, mental and physical and home needs that are going to impact on their work, Instead of pretending that none of those things impact us in matter, you know perhaps we're going to move to a more of a culture where we recognize those things and we recognize that you know you're not all going to be able to do the same on call rotor, right? so you're not going to be able to do you know just a cog in the big system so this is a real rant <laughs> but um you know i, I know of, of colleagues and friends and family members who've you know had really bad experiences with nhs occupational health before for example you know where revealing their their clinical condition has had adverse impacts on their training or their opportunities you know um so i, I think there is a huge cultural shift that needs to happen and, and maybe this is a step towards that this is being an optimist <laughs>
2: it's something that I've thought for a long time so obviously as a psychologist I generally you know I, I'll, I'll see a group of people that are having you know some, some sort of difficulty and prior, and prior to working with doctors I worked in medicine for a number of years so supporting people with chronic long-term health conditions um, and I, I'm always amazed at how you know, I've become to be amazed at how worried people are about sharing this, because when I see people, I see amazingly resilient people who've come through incredible adversity, you know, I I can't believe it sometimes, you know, people working so hard, managing a health condition, managing appointments, managing a family, taking on all the other um, activities that people have to do to get their CV audits, you know, quality improvements. And, and then t- to feel that they would then be criticised for having or um, to, for having the, I I find it astounding. And I always think, well, it, surely if I'm as a patient, I want a doctor who understands a little bit about health and and about not being well and about how it might feel to manage a cut. Co- so I actually think we should perhaps value this more. But yeah, it's been a it's been a shock to me that people are so because I kind of be like, surely you could just say that you've got that or you know but people are absolutely adamant that that is not the case and and you can't and I guess it does lead us to reflect on how are we able to say we're not okay are we able to say that we are not feeling well or that we yeah it's it's interesting and worrying that the uh, the main message I get is that we can't still
0: It's interesting because these conversations kind of remind me, Kat, of conversations we've had with other guests about sharing your mental health conditions and how similarly often people try not to do that if they're doctors because they feel like it means they won't be, I guess, accepted isn't the right word, but maybe they might be viewed differently by their colleagues if they say, you know, I have a mental health condition. So it's really interesting that we're kind of reflecting that on a physical health point of view. Because I guess I always thought maybe it was because mental health is sometimes seen as this other thing. But the fact that it's across the board is is quite sad. And obviously, as you say, something that needs to it's change. It's difficult
2: about how we change it as well. I, a really good friend of mine um, has, has mental health difficulties. And I was asking her about speaking up about something. And she was saying it's unfair. Why should it always have to be, you know, me who speaks up um that, that's not the way That's not the way it should have to be. The pressure's on us to kind of vocalise and say what we're struggling with. Um, but then if people don't, it's also then they're very difficult because it involves people speaking on behalf. And I think one of the most important factors I've seen over the past year is some really brave and courageous leaders in the NHS. So um, I have some colleagues, consultant doctors, who have been speaking very openly about their mental health and physical health. And they are such fantastic role models because nobody can't argue. They are top of their game. They're great at their job. They're a brilliant colleague and team player and leader. And then they speak about it. And I was just at a return uh, the return to work training course I did last week. One of my colleagues spoke at that. And the feedback was overwhelmingly that was the best talk because there's somebody to aspire to. There's the role model. There's someone who's openly saying, I've struggled, but look where I'm at. And I think it's really, really important that people in who feel they can in those positions are advocating and speaking out because again it shouldn't be the person who's struggling at the time who's having to be the one who's advocating for themselves we we need to be doing that and I think there's some nice ideas about calling things out if we see things you know see things that are not right hear things that are not right being able to say actually you know trying to challenge some of these stigmas and assumptions so it's not always the person the person themselves
0: i i wasn 't expecting that to come into our conversation, but that is really, really interesting, and I think it's a really important mm. part of of the conversation I that's the
1: joy of the podcast isn 't it that we don 't know where the conversation's mm. going to go, but it feels like that was a really <laughs> yeah. important place to get to and i I really love that yeah, kind definitely. of call for for role modeling and the kind of positive action that that people can take to actually engender this culture change, which which will make everything easier for people, you know, because it's accepted that you have to be away from the clinical environment for whatever reasons that are personal to you and, and you are equally valued and, you know, that doesn't have any impact on how your team or your organisation sees you and values you. No, I think... Yeah, but I think it's a really good point.
0: and it, it. there was one question that I was going to ask Emma and I thought I wouldn't because I think you... Kat and Emma you both would be like that so it's one of these questions I ask Emma that just comes from a place of naivety but the question was going to be do you think there's a risk in medicine that they'll become a kind of them versus us culture of people who worked in a clinical environment during the pandemic especially those people who felt like they were really on the front line you know in the ICUs and then the people who were working at home and whether one group will feel superior is the wrong word but they'll feel like they did did more, in inverted commas, than the group who were working at home.
2: My initial response to that is, I really hope not. Um, I also (laughs) think that hospitals and healthcare settings are really complex systems so i think it would be very hard for, for that to happen because there's been so much change and flux in the time and I, i'm in the southwest so actually we, we all everyone was redeployed and they're in their mega teams and they were ready to go and then they stood around and did not a lot for for a little while because you know um it just didn't happen here how, how we thought it would and everything else had been cancelled so there was a lot of waiting and i saw a lot of guilt then as well you know staff you know and then guilt that we weren't in london and we weren't experiencing you know it's like oh we're just humans we just love this bit of guilt don't we We love to you know feel guilty about not being like you were saying cat not being as bad as somebody else or not or not being in this situation um and i think a lot of people have worked in very different ways and worked from home and you know i've worked from home much more than i ever have before so I, i would really hope there's too much complexity to make that 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 straight divide um and also the conversations we have start to change around around this about you know what again you know a similar divide could happen with those furloughed and those not furloughed i guess is another the the other kind of divide here isn't there and again it's yeah we, we we've all been through a time of it and I don't know how we ensure that the that that doesn't happen I just I don't know whether I'm too optimistic but I I really hope not and the work that's been done at home is immense you know the policies that have been written the audits that have been done and they, they need to be really valued and um, and again maybe that's the responsibility of you know everyone this is everyone's business isn't it trying to understand what other people have experienced, you know, I guess if you're working in a team and you're not someone's immediate line manager, you may feel it's not your responsibility to think about the person coming back from Shirning, But I would argue it's it's everyone's business. It's everyone, mm-hmm. for us all to think about how we talk about things. It's for us all to watch the nuances in the team. Absolutely. I think you're right as humans. It,
0: I think it's, it's always hard to avoid when you mentioned people furloughed and not furloughed. And then I remembered myself. Being annoyed at friends who last summer had been, you know, furloughed for six or eight weeks and I was working really hard at that time because we were really busy and they were saying, oh, it's been really hard. And I was thinking, but you've not even been at work. But obviously I didn't appreciate why it was hard for them because I could only you know, see my own, yeah. my own point of view. And now that you've said that, I feel really but No,
2: it's bad. the same. I, I my, uh, <laughs> yeah, my sister-in-law's been fellow the ho- whole time. And sometimes I think, oh, it'd be quite nice to have been fellow. But she's also been worried about whether she's keeping a job. And she's also not been able to go out and, you know, do the commute to work. And yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's other concerns. But, you know, I think we have to give ourselves a break. This has been really difficult for everybody and, you know, and like you were saying earlier about same storm, different boat. I heard that recently as well, and they've been vastly different boats, haven't they? I mean, sometimes I feel like I've been on a bit of a luxury liner. It's been okay for me, but other times I've been bailing water out. You know, it's it's been a really dynamic thing, and and I'm really accepting that it's not been easy for any of us. And I think as humans, when we're frightened, when we're threatened, which you know most of us will have experienced this past year. We're not at our best. We we don't behave at our best. We we we're we're hyper vigilant to the threat and so therefore we're not the best sense of ourselves. So I also felt that in the kind of summer when people were kind of raging with people on the beach or people are raging with it's also, you know, understanding that a lot of people are just perhaps doing their best under very difficult circumstances and to at this point to try and be reflective and see other people's viewpoints very difficult, but a really important Part of this process, Mm.
0: Emma. You work with a lot of people um, returning to work. Be that doctors who've been shielding and working from home, or people returning from maternity leave. When we think about returning, do you think the focus should be on the individual, or is there should there be more of a focus on what the team can do to support those people?
2: So, I I definitely think it needs to be about the team um, and how we support, and not just the team. It's about thinking about healthy cultures, about thinking about the system that we work in and I think for too long now in the NHS and um, in in many environments there's been a huge pressure on an individual to be more resilient or to be well or to be healthy and and actually you know you could have somebody who's the most you know been on all the resilience training in the world done everything ticked all those boxes and goes back to a really unhealthy team or a team where there's incivility or um, a lot of pressure or no kind of slack or uncaring, uncompassionate, And they will not be resilient for very long because it's it's the wrong way to see it, that these are individual qualities. Actually, what we know is that resilience arises from good connections and working with people that support each other. And the the team that I work in are very much trying to kind of push this now, that we need to move away from individual intervention to looking at how the system works together. So, you know, good leadership, um, compassionate leadership but then how do we support the leaders to be good leaders and compassionate leaders um, and what, what 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 do they need to do that and again it will be good supportive connections you know people that look out for each other cultures where we are civil to each other where we you know it's not always about being kind but it, well it is about being kind it's not always about being nice i guess it's always about being kind but you know doing things in a compassionate way in a constructive way and um, and one of the concepts i think that we think is so important is this idea around psychological safety which is the ability to be able to speak up and say what you think and feel and again it's not always about agreeing or but it is about being able to say actually this doesn't feel right or i've got an idea or i actually that wasn't okay When when that happened, and not know you're not going to be humiliated or put down, or um, and these are really difficult things. These are big concepts and big things. But if we, and in this case, we're talking about shielding, and you can imagine a team where you don't have psychological safety, so people don't feel free to speak up, and you know, or a team where we don't have civility. You can imagine coming back to that and being really worried about the reaction you're going to get from your your colleagues or your seniors. Um, And if you do come back and you're expected to, you know, you're asked to do something which you don't feel fits within your risk assessment or doesn't feel safe, um, it would be very hard to raise that. Whereas if you're in a team where you know that it's okay to say, actually, it's not okay for me to go to that area because my risk assessment says that I need to be in a COVID-secure area and you know you're going to get the backing of your team, you're much more likely to do that. So this is, you know, bigger than, it's beyond shielding. This is about... um, creating cultures that are supportive of our colleagues and and that you know at the end of the day that's right for everybody because that's right for us as staff but that's right for our patients as well if we create um cultures in which people can speak up and raise things and say things we get the best out of everybody in in that way um.
0: Kat, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. I especially thought the point that I think you initially brought up about um, when people return from shielding, whether or not it's okay to ask them about why they've been shielding, and and the fact that you know, as we learned from Emma, people might be might have deliberately not disclosed sort of the conditions that led to their shielding and how difficult that might end up being for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you made the point, Abby, about how, you know, we've talked a lot about mental health and the importance of being open and about that, but we haven't really considered how... Um the culture in medicine deals with the physical health of, of clinicians and it obviously has a huge impact on your well being um and the sort of strain of your daily life, let alone um, you know, the strain of your professional life, let alone the strain of the pandemic, it's sort of layer upon layer here, isn't there?
0: As a non clinician, and I think I said tried to say this earlier, but not particularly coherently, but as a non clinician, I'm surprised that people are unwilling to talk about their physical health conditions. I can kind of understand it more with mental health conditions because I think uh, it's been much better in recent times, but I think sort of in years gone by, people just didn't talk about mental health. But the fact that doctors who know the ins and outs
1: of all different types of you know physical conditions don't talk to each other about their own it's quite surprising but i think if you think about we have this culture where we're not very good at taking breaks or prioritizing sleep or hydration or food or all of that self-care i mean that is all about kind of recognizing sort of your physicality and the fact that you're an embodied person um and so historically medicine has not been very good at that and i think it a lot of this um i think guilt is just such an overwhelming powerful emotion and you know you feel guilty if you sort of have to take time off for attending a hospital appointment or you know going for a blood test etc etc and you feel like you're adding a burden to already overstretched system and i think there's this real thing where clinicians don't want to be a burden to their colleagues or to the nhs um and this and then all that messaging around shielding that emma was talking about that really kind of sort of emphasize that you are a burden um kind of message and so I think really moving away from that and how negative and damaging it is and being like you know you are valued you know you do not have to be perfect to be valued you know you you are who you are and you know you are valued whatever your physical or mental health condition that's really kind of hippie and crunchy but (laughs) that's that's how I feel and I just don't think we're we're good at doing that in the NHS, that kind of compassionate culture. Um, and we know from people like Michael West and all of their work around patient safety, how important that compassionate culture is not just for well-being but for safety and high quality care. And it, I just, I guess I feel really frustrated that we're still having these conversations around why aren't we better at doing this. Um, so it'd be really good to talk more about how we could get better at doing this. And I think that idea of leadership role modeling that emma brought up is is just a really important takeaway for me from this this podcast i think that's going to be a really powerful intervention in the system
0: absolutely well that's all we have time for for now thanks very much to our guest emma lishman for coming on the podcast
1: and you can check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter or join the bmj Wellbeing group on facebook we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us bye, bye.